Hi, this is James Barris. I hope you find this talk supports you in your practice. If you'd like to support my teaching, you can use the donate button underneath my picture on Dharma Seed to do that. Your support is greatly appreciated. So here we are on the, the end of the fourth day of practice. It's a very um, sweet and uh, um, enjoyable time, at least for me, on the retreat because uh, people are just starting to settle in to see that it's actually possible to, to notice more than one or two breaths in a sitting. It gives them a little bit of faith that there might be some something besides knee pain and, uh, and busy mind ahead. I can feel it in the hall too. It's really, uh, it's really wonderful to sit here. Most of you know the story of the Buddha. How the first part of his life, born into royalty, as as the story usually goes, uh, he was given the most wonderful circumstances that one could hope for with all the sense pleasures and gratifications that could imagine finest clothes and food and entertainment and some accounts harems and all sorts of delights that it would seem to be pretty neat thing if we were blessed with that kind of karma and enjoyed that for the first 29 years of his life. And then, as you probably know, he left his home, left the palace, and became a monk looking for a deeper meaning to life, practicing the most austere practices that the ascetics in his time uh, were doing, and that meant real self-mortification of the body, of, of the mind, starving oneself, uh, just taking food every now and then when it would fall from the trees or maybe uh, every few days taking a morsel of food. You probably have seen pictures of the bodhisattva, the emaciated bodhisattva with his ribs sticking out, and his back ribs you can see in the front, and really getting down there to, to the depths. So after living the first part of his life with all the sense pleasures that one could hope for, and then the next part of his life on a real self-denial, it's not surprising that when he finally uh, awoke under the Bodhi tree at the age of 35, that his teaching, what's often talked of as the eightfold path, the prescription for happiness that he came up with was really the middle path, sometimes called the middle path or the middle way. After having those two extremes as his history, he saw, well, you're not getting any more fulfilled by getting the next sense pleasure, the next, the next, and the next, and saying no, 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 wasn't doing it either. So he said, hmm, maybe there's a happy medium here. And so his teaching 
is a lot about balance. Coming into some balance and harmony in your life. Various aspects of the teaching reflect this idea of balance. And this is what I want to talk about tonight. How we can bring it into our own practice. How we can make it meaningful meaningful for us in our lives. In some of the more traditional teachings, there are uh, a number of lists that generally reflect this idea of balance. There's one list, if you like lists, you're in the right place for it. One list, the five faculties, where the balancing pairs that are in between mindfulness is the fifth faculty. One pair, concentration needs to be balanced with energy. You probably can see this for yourself in in your own practice. When there's too much energy and not enough concentration or stillness, it gets very agitated, a restless mind. When there's too much stilling in the quality of concentration and not enough energy, you start to nod off and go into dreamlike state. And so they have to be brought into balance. The other pair in those five faculties is the balance of wisdom and faith. If there's too much wisdom in the sense of an intellectual investigation, but without the heart, then it gets to be a very dry and cerebral exercise. And the converse, if there's too much faith or only faith that's not balanced by wisdom, that's not balanced by a keen, um, healthy skepticism that looks for the truth for oneself, then what develops is blind faith, just taking somebody else's word for it and not seeing for yourself the truth of things. So both, both of those pairs have to be brought into balance. Another famous list is seven factors of enlightenment. Again, with mindfulness being uh, being the central one, there are three of those seven that have to do with energizing, with exploring the quality of active investigation, energy, investigation, joy, and rapture. And they have to be brought into balance with those calming, stilling forces, as I just mentioned, calm, concentration, equanimity. And if any of them are out of balance or one side is top-heavy, then the practice goes awry. Why is balance so important? Well, think for yourself, when you're off balance, how does it feel? You might have might reflect on one or two times in the last few days when you've been a bit off balance. When there's either been a a toppling forward into the future. Oh, what's for lunch? Or what's the next sitting going to be like? Or what am I going to do when I get out of this retreat? Who am I going to tell about my wonderful, profound retreat experience? You You can spend a lot of time in those thoughts. Or thinking about the past, often when you come here, the first few days of a retreat, kind of leaning backwards from where you came. Then in the middle of the retreat, it's 
okay, what's for lunch? And then at the end of the retreat, it's where am I going to? In these first few days, you probably had a few thoughts about what you left behind. And when you replay them again and again, it keeps us from seeing accurately what our experience is. So that's one way that we get thrown off balance in time, past and future. Obviously, there's a whole host of ways that we get thrown off balance in confusion, in fear, in worry, in judgment. How does it feel when you're off-center like that? It's pretty painful. And it also makes it virtually impossible to see things clearly. When we can learn to develop a balanced mind, there's a sense of resting in this moment, of coming into it with a calm, with an ease, with a presence. And out of that balance of mind comes a deep understanding because you can see things so clearly. You start to see the workings of of reality, the impermanent nature of things, the ungraspability of things. The expression of, of a deeply balanced mind is what's called high equanimity. And it doesn't even matter if things are pleasant or unpleasant. There can be a spaciousness that is here for the whole show. And it's possible to train ourselves to develop that capacity. Little by little, you're doing it in each meditation, in each moment, in each experience where there is pleasant quality that you're not grasping. Each time where there's a difficult situation where you're not immediately recoiling but willing to be with it for just a little while to investigate and see what's actually going on. And out of that profound equanimity comes awakening where one shifts one's perspective of how things are put together. You see in that, in that fully resting here in the moment that there is not a separation of me and the rest of life. And that's very profound. So balance is really the way to create the conditions for that deep understanding and opening. Sometimes when people hear the word balance, they think of a kind of scale, a balance beam, you know, with, with the needle pointing right in the center. And it seems so elusive. How do I get into that center and stay there? And it gets very frustrating if you if you try to hold on to that notion, because that's not how we're wired up. Balance is a dynamic process. There's not a static place. This is what I should be doing. This is how, I, how much I should put into the meditation. This is the place I want to stay at. And please, please, Lord or Dharma, keep me here. Because we're a continually changing system, sometimes our energy is low, sometimes it's high, sometimes our clarity is is sharp, sometimes it's a bit fuzzy. It's not a matter of fixing in any one point, but it's more learning to ride 
the ups and downs and to notice what adjustment is needed to come into harmony in this moment. It's a bit like riding a bike or another common analogy on a retreat, riding a roller coaster. Think of how many different moods, how many moods have you had just today? Two? (laughs) Three? (laughs) Four hundred? It's so quick. It changes so fast. How can you expect to stay in the center, unmoving in the middle of all of that here on the fourth day? It's seeing, what can I do to come back into harmony with this change? Because you're in constant transition. And so, rather than thinking of fixing yourself in any one place, it's more a a quality of developing a right relationship with your experience, an openness with it, an acceptance of it, an embracing of it, an ease in the midst of it. There are some areas that we particularly find ourselves off balance here in the retreat experience. I'd like to share a few with you so we can understand them and get a sense of perhaps how we can uh, more easily come back again into our center. One whole area has to do with subtleties in the meditation technique itself. With the instructions, people come into interviews, into the groups or into um, individual interviews. And there are all sorts of questions about when do I do this? When do I do that? We started off with, uh, with working with the breath as the primary focus. And that was, it's challenging to stay with the breath, but at least, at least it's a simple instruction. Okay, just be with the breath. You don't have to think about too much else. Then, second day or third day, start talking about sensations and sounds. Then, add on mind states and hindrances and emotions. Tomorrow we're going to add on thoughts. There's a lot to keep in mind. Well, what do I do with all of this? Especially if you're new to the practice. Where do I go? Should I be staying with my breath? Should I be feeling an emotion? Should I notice the the sound? How long do I stay on it for? It gets a little confusing. You know what I mean? So part of understanding the meditation instructions is getting a sense of the balance that will help us be most present. The breath is always here as a focusing device. It's always available for us to come back and recollect the awareness when things are confused, when we're uh, we're having an overwhelming experience in something else, or when nothing is happening. Ah, sitting here breathing. At other times, you might find yourself being pulled away. Strong feelings, strong uh, sensations in the body, or thought patterns. And there's no chance at all of staying with the breath because that's really what's going on. Okay, So staying with that, opening up to that, and really experiencing it fully, it is just as valid and important an aspect of the meditation is staying with the breath. You know, I was saying in, in one of the groups today, 
if you can stay on the breath from the beginning to the end of a of a sitting it's pretty impressive it's a neat trick but what's the point what do you go home and say i can stay on my breath for a whole hour what's the value in that if that's all the meditation is about rather it's about learning to be present using the breath as a way to get yourself here so that then you can start to explore all parts of your experience your feelings your thoughts your body but how much do you stay on the breath how much do you go with the other well as with most of the guidelines there's no right answer it's more of a sense of what will be useful what is needed to help bring about a sense of presence and collectedness when you're finding yourself really scattered and diffuse that's the time to come back and refocus on the breath if you're with the breath and you've been there for a while and it's feeling very confining or it's feeling like you're controlling it or if something else is happening and you're feeling quite present but able to stay with it that's a time perhaps to open up the field to notice what's going on and it can be an alternation between those two between between a more choiceless awareness and refining the attention again just on the simple subject of the breath another uh, area with the meditation instructions or technique is the whole um question of how much do i explore my feelings when they're here this came up in in the groups today and when you're really feeling something strongly do you stay with it and just tear your heart open in the process okay i'll explore this this pain is there a place to know when to back off when to give yourself some space when to give a break that's with both emotional pain and physical pain knowing when to back off knowing when to explore again it's an art of practice that really is centrally uh connected to the concept of balance if you can stay with what's going on if you have a strong a deep emotion say a memory of some of some pain some hurt some some sadness and you're here with it okay if you have enough energy and and capacity to um to explore let me feel this you can feel it and and really get into a fine relationship of the the texture of that feeling and it's very very helpful it's very profound when you can bring an awareness that's not judging that's not trying to control your experience but sometimes it's not possible sometimes you get overwhelmed when you're feeling that kind of that depth of hurt and if you are feeling overwhelmed if you feel like you're you're in over your head then it's fine to back off okay just time to regroup time to come back and feel myself breathing here just getting a little space taking some deeper breaths so it really again depends on your energy and your your level of of perception how you can meet this moment in fullness 
and knowing when to give yourself a little bit of space. It's a very um, rich aspect of, of the meditation process to come into exploring all of those places in ourselves that we're afraid to touch. Sometimes when people have the idea that, that they're going to be filled with love and filled with compassion and kindness, they come to a retreat, they're going to quiet down and just get in touch with all the beauty inside. And then they come here and there's anger and rage and pain and hurt and all of that stuff. They think, oh my God, something's going wrong here. It's not. It's a natural process when you're willing to open yourself up that you're going to see the whole show. And the more you can start to be comfortable with accepting those parts of being human, then all of those other things that you want to contact are more available to you. There's a beautiful uh, quote I want to share from uh, Alexander Solzhenitsyn. He says, If only it were all so simple, if only there were evil people somewhere insidiously committing evil deeds, and it were necessary only to separate them from the rest of us and destroy them. But the line dividing good and evil cuts through the heart of every human being, and who is willing to destroy a piece of his own heart? It's in all of us, the beauty the ugliness, all there. And there's a skill that that gets acquired over time in learning to know when to go exploring, when, how to increase your capacity to accept and bring kindness and compassion to all of those places inside. Just a little at a time. You don't have to do it all in one sitting. Same with pain. You know, the idea isn't to come to the end of the pain in your your neck or in your your knee just a little at a time to learn to work with it and when you've had your fill when it becomes a struggle when it becomes really confusing it's time to just soften and lighten up so these areas around the men, the uh, meditation technique very useful to keep in mind this idea of balance one uh, very useful aid in getting a right relationship as you're doing the meditation is with the mental noting because that can give you a clue right away what your relationship is with things. If you're feeling tight, if you're feeling contracted, just listen to the tone. Thinking, thinking, thinking. Judging, judging. Judging, again, judging, judging. And if you can get a sense of the mental noting and change the tone, it changes your relationship with it. Something I I like to do in in the groups and uh, in interviews is just have people experience what it's like to note judging like you're caressing a baby. Judging, judging, judging. That's it. That's the way you want to relate to your experience. And in that one moment, it doesn't matter how many layers of judgment you've heaped on, there you are again bringing some kindness to it and the whole drama dissolves.
So can experiment with using the mental noting in that way to develop that balance and that ease and spaciousness with, with what's going on. A whole other area around the meditation concerning balance has to do with the question of effort. It comes up a lot. Again, it came up in, uh, in one of the groups today. How much should I be doing? Am I doing enough? Am I doing too much? Everybody around here seems so impeccable. It's driving me crazy. (laughs) I've got to do more. Or, gosh, I'm being a pretty good yogi right now. I hope everybody notices. (laughs) One one retreat, I saw this in myself, you know, the, the whole question of presentation and, and image just think how much of your retreat has been an awareness of how you're coming off in the presence of others one retreat I was I was doing the walking meditation I would I had done this enough to kind of see this pattern I'd be walking all by myself and, and quite diligently nobody was around lifting moving placing lifting moving placing feel really at home and enjoying deliciously the walking at times, somebody would come in to the room or be near me and all of a sudden there'd be a whole other reason for doing the walking. And I started, after a while I started to, to use the label that was helpful for me, lifting, moving, looking good, looking good, <laughs> lifting, looking good. It was very, very instructive, just kind of catching it. I see you, I see you, looking good. <laughs> Try it, yeah. you'll, you'll like it. <laughs> so a lot of the question of effort has to do with presentation and somehow meeting your report card, your evaluation, am I doing, am I doing it right? There is a misunderstanding here around effort. If you're equating or evaluating effort with the results of what you're experiencing, that is, how slowly you're walking, or how little thought there is in the mind, or how spacey you are right now, or sleepy, or how much pain in the body, you are setting yourself up for a lot of problems. Because what happens is completely out of your control. Completely. I've been on retreats where I'd be pretty quiet, you know, after a, a month or two of sitting, and I'd walk into the hall on, in, at some sitting, I'd sit down, some time would pass, I don't know exactly what was going on, the bell would ring, and I'd wake up, and I'd say, what planet was I? I have no idea where I was. And just the sitting before, I was quite clear. It doesn't go linearly in the direction of clarity and, and brilliance. It's more of an up and down kind of a thing. And so you can let go of the whole report card. It makes it so much simpler. Often there's some misunderstandings about what good practice would look like. You know, you, you have an idea, oh, if I'm really quiet or calm, 
then I'll be a good meditator. That's not so. Sometimes there's places of real deep fear or um, rage or disgust with with the, the nature of things. That can be a sign of very profound practice. Other times you can be pretty quiet yourself and you hear somebody sobbing around you and you say, gosh, they're getting a lot out of this retreat, you know? <laughs> I wish I'd come to the ends of all these knots in my, my history and my, my parents and my, my relationships and I'm just sitting here and watching my breath, you know, big deal, you know? This happened my first couple of years of practice Mostly, I had I had some physical pain, but mostly when I'd settle in, it was really sweet. I was fortunate and, and blessed in, in in that regard, I guess. And but I'd go running to the teacher saying, "Listen, uh, I think I'm doing something wrong because you know not much is happening. I'm just having a good time here, and everybody else is talking about pain." He said, "Don't worry. Don't go looking for trouble. It's going to find you soon enough." <laughs> it did in spades and I know what it's like to have deep agony in the heart but you have no idea what's going on while you're in the middle of the process sometimes you you think oh slow walking that's where it's at and you can be looking good on the outside and just a million miles away inside you can be going slowly and somebody goes fast and you say, gosh, they're going so fast. I wish they'd get their act together. You know? And then 10 minutes later, you're walking and you think you're going slowly and somebody's really going slow. You go, God, who do they think they are? You know? <laughs> or you might think that uh, that having no thoughts is where it's at. I used to think that there'd be this giant vacuum cleaner that would just, you know, suck all the thoughts away if I'd really do it right. It took me a couple of years to get over that one. You're not trying to do away with thoughts. In fact, if you try to push them away, all you do is getting frustrated, is get frustrated and get more entangled in a thought process of what you're supposed to do if instead you can just create a space of mind allowing everything to be there in the background and guiding your attention to what's really here in the foreground the sitting the body sensations or whatever it is you don't have to be bothered with pushing anything away there's so many layers of mental activity that that we're usually not even aware of as you start to deepen the meditation practice the loud thoughts go away and then there's subtler, subtler thoughts just within a breath. Loads of thoughts. You say, God, where's it all coming from? No idea. I have no idea. I used to ask teachers the first few years of practice, almost every teacher I'd say, where did thoughts come from? Nobody has ever given me a good answer for that. They just come. It's part of having a mind. And you can appreciate it, you can keep a sense of humor about it without needing to do away with your thinking process. It's nice that we have thoughts. It would be a pretty boring mind and experience if we were just going through life with, without thinking. So we're not trying to do away with anything. We're just 
hopefully seeing through the empty nature of thoughts. They just come and go on their own. And as you can see that, you can choose which ones you want to give energy to, which ones you can just let fly by. One of the the beauties around uh, of the practice around effort is that you can realize that you don't have any control over how mindful you are or how concentrated you are. The only thing you need to concern yourself with is coming back when you've gone. That's it. Be here as best you can, and when you see you've gone, come on back. It's okay. And start again. Then you can let go of whatever is going on. It doesn't matter. And there's no way that you're going to maintain it. You're going to maintain your clarity once you're finally there. Ah, I finally arrived. It's not like that. It's impermanent like everything. Clarity as well. The question of effort is not evaluated by what it's going on, what it's looking like and what's going on outside. Rather, if you can really go inside and see what sincerity you're bringing to the practice. Is there a real willingness to be here? Are you putting your heart into it? That's what effort is about. Just the willingness to to really open up to the whole show. And sometimes it's less, sometimes it's more. But if you can get in touch with the sincerity that brought you here in the first place to sign up in the retreat and feel that pull to discover, if you're putting in a sincere energy into the moment, then you're doing fine. And the whole idea of how much effort to make is, again, simply making the appropriate adjustment. Sometimes, if you're wound up, you can feel it in your body. If you feel like the walls are closing in, that's a good clue that it's time to get a little bit of space. If you feel like you're in prison and uh, the guards are very uh, demanding, time to get a little bit of space, time to soften, time to lighten up. If, on the other hand, you're feeling really laid back, well, maybe I'll be mindful, maybe I won't, it doesn't matter. Maybe it's time to renew your commitment and remember what got you here. So it's more a matter of getting a sense of where you're at. You can almost feel it in your body, feel the contraction, feel the tightness, or feel the, the laziness or the sluggishness, and then make the appropriate adjustment. And sometimes that will not look at all like your idea of good practice. One retreat I was doing where I was pretty impeccable. I really like to put my whole heart into the practice, as as I said the first night, putting in sincere effort and keeping it light. But for this particular period in the retreat, I was forgetting about the light part. And I was really doing it and going slow and just every moment was kind of pouncing on my experience. And after a while, this is, this is going on, it had been gone, going on for a couple of weeks, actually. And I said, after a while, I was just felt like a wound-up spring. Time to take a break. Okay, I'm not going to be mindful. It was going to be my little rebelliousness yeah, period. I'm not going to be mindful. I'm just going to forget about this garbage for a while. And I decided to take a walk, just a stroll. And I I had been 
It had been weeks since I took a normal paced walk. <laughs> and it was, uh, this was in, in Massachusetts during the winter, the, the snow, and I hadn't been out in the snow, and I decided I'd bundle up and put on my boots, and even that was kind of exciting, just putting on my, my, uh, my clothes, my bundling up. And, boots it took so long to get them on I said wow I'm going to go for a walk and not be mindful at all and I started to walk fast it was amazing left right left right hearing sniffling thinking left right as soon as I stopped being mindful it was one of the most mindful walks I've ever had in my life for 45 minutes just one moment after another it was amazing so get a sense and see what you need to do that will help you to bring some balance again in your energy some spaciousness a whole other area of balance with respect to the practice has to do with the active versus the receptive qualities you know we've we've talked a lot about being open and receptive to your experience just letting it rise meeting it with awareness and then the other side go in there and really dissect your breath and get into the fine tuning make every moment count the message is sometimes uh, seem to be in contradiction. And some teachers you might hear saying, oh, simple and easy, just relax. And then somebody else will get up and say, be very careful as you tie your shoelaces. You know, and well, what am I supposed to do? Am I supposed to be impeccable? Am I supposed to take it easy? Is it a natural unfolding? Am I supposed to squeeze each moment of mindfulness out of it? Sometimes it's the same teacher saying the same, saying different things as a half an hour later. And it seems a bit confusing. So I wanted to address this, this principle of the active and the receptive. Or another way of putting it is the doing nature of the meditation versus the being nature of the meditation. And if you go looking in the scriptures, you can get pretty good confirmation or corroboration for your point of view. Um, there's uh, a great Sayadaw at uh, the end of last century uh, who, who said, practice like your hair is on fire. That's the way to do the practice. That'll wake you up. Uh, <clears throat> or Upandita uh, Sayadaw is this uh, wonderful Burmese teacher that, uh, that we've sat with and some of you have sat with in that that traditional style of being a warrior, heroic effort, he calls it. And I, I sat with him a few times and he'd, he'd say, abandon all concern for the body. If your leg falls off, don't matter. Just sit there. You know. And it's very powerful to sit like that. When you've got that kind of commitment and you put a hundred, a thousand percent effort in things start to to really gel if you can remember to keep it light. That's the important part. <laughs> Took me a little while to, to remember that. 
And then there's other great teachers. Buddha Dasa is one, this wonderful teacher from Thailand. Nothing to do, nothing to be, nothing to have. <sighs> Sounds good, doesn't it? <laughs> or the third Zen patriarch says, just let things be in their own way. There'll be neither coming nor going. I get a sense of which one is the more popular here. <clears throat> so it's a real paradox. And how do you put both of those together? Well, the paradox is that the meditation, it requires a real commitment and a real effort to be able to just be here. It's so hard to come into the present moment. One, one teacher uh, I once heard referred to the meditation practice as manual labor. Just come on back each time. Okay, come on back. How many times the mind has wandered? Countless times. How many thoughts have you had today? Goodness. And each time bringing it back, it's so hard to just be here in the present. And so it takes a tremendous commitment and effort but at some point to truly rest in the moment requires a real letting go letting go of any kind of effort because when we're really in the moment when we're fully present then any movement towards experience or away from experience it's a movement of becoming or trying to make something happen and out of simply being. When you're just being, there's no struggle, there's no striving, there's no duality, me being a good meditator, me doing the meditation. And when there's that simple rest in the natural state, then the meditation isn't one of seeing clearly, it's simply being. That's wonderful. And we all have that capacity to do it. Just for a moment, just as a, an experiment, close your eyes okay, and just sit here, feel yourself alive. No effort to do anything, just feel yourself alive being here. Could you feel it? Is there any confusion in that? Is there any tomorrow or yesterday or complication? It's just, ah, here, presence. So how do we reconcile these two? How do we bring them into balance? this active doing and this simple being. First of all, having the understanding that nothing to do is not as easy as it sounds. Mostly when we think of nothing to do, we think, oh, just kick back, 
and let whatever happens happen. But really, that kind of nothing to do is what the lazy mind gets into and there's plenty of doing when there's likes and dislikes. I don't want this. No, I do want that. And there's a continual reaction of mind if you're not quite attentive to what's going on. It's not a simple resting in the moment. It's, it's a constant seeing how you can fix the moment, how you can fix it to be better than it is or, or take something away. And the preparation that we put in, that we require, that's usually required to just be, gives us some glimpses, like you perhaps just had now, of what it's like to be really present for your experience. Maybe a glimpse of how things pass away so quickly, the impermanent nature of things. As you keep on looking again and again into the present, you see how change is constantly happening and there's perhaps a little bit less of a grip on controlling experience so you can simply be. Maybe a bit more of a trust that develops as you make the effort, the sincere effort to be here. One of my, uh, my dear teachers, not a meditation teacher, but somebody who's inspired me very much, he says, meditation wears down the mind until it finally gives up. Yeah. But you can't bypass that for most people. It really means coming into terms and sensing what it means to be fully awake, what it means to actually lift your foot and know you're doing that, to sit here and breathe and know that you're breathing. One very helpful aid in developing an effort that becomes effortless is having a continuity in practice. Continuity is, is really the key to deepening the whole meditation and kicking the momentum into an effortless state. And so when you're sitting and then you get up from the sitting, if you can be present with, a, with a, a kind of investigation as you get up, as you put on your shoes, as you brush your teeth, then at the beginning it takes a lot of effort perhaps, but after a while it's, it's so interesting. It's so, um, so much a sense of home that you want to be more present. And continuity is really the key. There's a, a wonderful image that, uh, that I like of putting a tea, a tea kettle on a stove. And if you take it off every 30 seconds or so, you're not going to boil the water. But if you leave it on, even if sometimes the flame is low and sometimes it's high, after a while, it'll cook. It's the same way with the practice. If you keep putting in your time and a sincere effort, sincere willingness to come back each time, not straining, not jumping on top of the experience, but even in, as you go for a, an open, easy walk, to just relax and, and let the moment present itself to you, then that starts to develop into, into a deep, uh, effortless kind of mindfulness. 
the other bridge between the being, between the doing and the being, between the effort and the effortlessness is something that just mentioned in passing now and Carol mentioned uh, last night. That of interest. Interest is really an essential component to this practice. That's why the first few days are so hard because what you're paying attention to, there's not much going on in the show. And what, you're, what is going on is an ache in your shoulder or in your body or wandering mind. It's, it's not so entertaining. But as the mindfulness develops, if you can let yourself be drawn into the moment to discover what's going on, then you don't have to be coaxed when you, can, when you find an interest in your experience. Sometimes you have to pretend you're interested even if it doesn't seem very entertaining. I wonder how breathing happens. I wonder how walking happens. And really what it is is coming back to a sense of, of wonder, of, of awe, of discovery. Having a child, it's, it's when you're around a ch- children, they have that sense of discovery. And we were all children, so we all have had it. We kind of get jaded into thinking, oh, well, I know what life is about now. But it's reclaiming that sense of awe and mystery and seeing the miracles all around us. Last, uh, this past year, I had this uh, beautiful exchange with, with my son, who's now five He'll be coming to the retreat uh, with uh, with his mom next week. He's one of my greatest teachers. And uh, one day he he came to uh, he came back home and he was asking about God, you know, which is it was the it's one of his one of his topics and it was going around the school and he said, well, what is God anyway? And I thought for a moment and I said, well, you know, I. I think of God as the magic. And he looked at me and said, well, what do you mean? It didn't really do it for him. And I said, well, you know, it's just how everything is happening all around and there's no explaining it, but somehow it's all, it's all happening miraculously. Still didn't quite do it for him. And he said, well, what do you mean? And I, I, we were sitting by the kitchen table and, and there was a, a cassette recorder and I picked up a, a cassette tape, and there was a Sesame Street tape. And I said, yeah, let's look at this. I put the cassette in, and the song started going around. And I said, and I pulled it out, and I said, do you think Bert and Ernie are in here right now? Yeah. No. I said, he said, I said, well, that's the magic, you know, how it is that, that they're able to, to come out of the, the, the radio, the, the cassette player. And he said... How does that happen? <laughs> I said, I don't know. <laughs> That's the magic. And then we went around and I, I turned on the radio and, and I said, isn't this amazing? We flipped from one station to the other. You can hear all these different voices, all these different people. And somehow it's coming through the air. He said, 
how does that happen? I said, I don't know. You know. That's the magic. And then we started going around from one thing to another and turning on the light. You know, that's the magic. And he, he started going up for the next week or so for when, when we get into, uh, into being together. You know, he'd taste the, the orange. Wow, that's the magic. And he started, hey, that's the magic, Dad. You know. Well, it's coming back into that very simple sense of, of awe and wonder at the mystery, that's what draws us into investigating, into exploring, into wanting to wake up to our lives. Because it is pretty magical, isn't it? So this whole question of balance, to sum up, around the meditation, around the technique, around effort, around doing, around being. There's no formulas. There's no right prescription. I'm supposed to do this much. I'm not supposed to do this much. It really requires developing the practice for yourself, having a sense of trust, being creative with the practice to see what is needed at this, po- at this moment to help get you most here, to help discover what's going on. Balance doesn't mean a lack of intensity, just kind of being coolly detached. You can be bringing a great deal of enthusiasm to the practice. Just getting a sense when you're feeling a little bit toppling forward or contracted or, or too spacey, what will keep me with that intensity open and easy with my experience? And the beautiful aspect of the meditation is that mindfulness itself is the balancing factor. That every moment that you're mindful, you are developing balance. In the sense that balance is not grasping at the pleasant, not pushing away the unpleasant, being willing to be here for whatever it is, pleasant or unpleasant, not identifying with your experience, this is my thought, this is my pain, this is my deep story, but simply seeing it for what it is, coming, arising and passing away on its own. In the moment that you're mindful, that balance is being developed. And that is both a moment of freedom and awakening and also is cultivating the possibility for a deep kind of understanding, a transformative kind of uh, coming to terms with what it means to be alive and be awake, the deepest sense of balance, the balance that is finding peace in just this moment as it is, already complete, nothing more needing to be added or taken away, And that's available to us at any moment and every moment that we're mindful. So let's do that together for a few minutes.
So there's a 45-minute walking period. Enjoy your practice. Enjoy the night walking. If you can bring an interest to it, it can be a gift to you, walking on the earth here in the night, out in the desert, with everyone in support, with yourself. Enjoy your practice. And the next, uh, uh, just before Lynn makes an announcement, the next sitting, uh, Jack will uh, Jack will be doing some uh, chanting as a, an added incentive, and you can you can hear some of the the Buddhist chants uh, as the evening ends. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.